are listening to the Down the Wormhole podcast, exploring the strange and fascinating relationship between science and religion. This week, our hosts are Kendra Holtmore, assistant professor of religion at Bethany College, and my favorite scar is a scar on the heel of my right foot, where I had a chunk of glass lodged in my foot for at least a couple months and it hurt all the time and it hurt to wear shoes and then one day it just popped out (laughs) uh ian benz associate professor of elementary science education at unc charlotte and i'd say my favorite scar is the one on my right uh index finger from when i had that weird uh, uh bacterial infection in my hand uh, back in 2017. It looks really funky. Rachel Jackson, Rabbi of Goodness Israel Congregation in Hendersonville, North Carolina. And oh, my favorite scar, I think, would have to be the scope scar from my gallbladder removal. And I say that one because there's three that go in with like the lasers, but then they also have to have one with the camera and the one with the camera keloided really weird. And so, and it's um, up next to my diaphragm and it's just really ugly looking. Like it's, it's funky. Um, So I think that's my favorite Mm -hmm. because it just allows me to marvel at what the human body can do. Um, and even when it doesn't have, when the human body doesn't have the ability to, um, heal prettily, it can still heal. And I have no issues in that part of my body. Like it's just funky looking. Um, but I've, I've got a lot of scars and so I had a lot to choose from. The reason that I'm asking this question today that we're answering this question today is that we're going to be talking about healing and prayer and cures and how all of that sort of works together. And I wanted to begin today with, well, a Jewish prayer, two of them. The very first one coming from, coming from the Torah, from the five books of Moses, where Uh, just sort of setting the scene from uh, the literal reading of the text, Miriam has been diagnosed with spiritual cooties, which is often, right, comes from the word sara'at, and is often translated as leprosy, but it's not. Because leprosy doesn't go away in seven days. Um, Let's just be honest about that. And then it gets healed by a priest and, you know, splash a little bit of blood on you and you're fine. So I call it spiritual cooties with no irreverence. But Moses, her brother, is really just like scared. It's just, he's just really scared. Um, And we have all these, this beautiful text throughout the entire, through all these books of Torah, there's some really beautiful lines but this one just has raw emotion. And in Hebrew, it's Elna Rafanala. And it translates to please God, heal her, please. And like 
five words in Hebrew, five very short words in Hebrew, two of them indicating this, this begging, this pleading, this um, emotion of helplessness and hope sort of combined. And shortly thereafter, she is, um, and they move on in camp, and life goes on um, through the wanderings of the desert. And there have been several arrangements of this done in, in music, but that, that prayer is one of the oldest prayers of healing that we have in Judaism. Okay, so fast forward a little bit. By a little bit, I mean like 3,000 years. And there is this woman uh, who was a songwriter. Her name was Debbie Friedman. Uh, she, she wrote, uh, I don't remember what year it was, but it was sometime in the 70s. The guitar playing, folk singing, really everyone have the ability to have these beautiful melodies. And she wrote um, a prayer for healing. And I won't sing it for you um because i don't know how my voice turns out sing <laughs> over sing a microphone you want me to sing it okay it's gonna take like a oh, minute or so to sing is that okay totally do fine think this, we should do this. absolutely do this because this is something that we do in every service so i'll sing it and then i'll tell you a little bit more about it me shebeirach avoteinu mekor abracha lehimavoteinu may the source of strength who bless the ones before us Help us find the courage to make our lives a blessing and let us say Amen. Bless those in need of healing with refuah The renewal of body, the renewal of spirit. And let us say, Amen. I thought that was beautiful. You can sing for me anytime. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I love this prayer so much. It is a prayer of healing, but I really want to point out that it says things like, help us find the courage, a renewal of body, a renewal of spirits, those who are in need of healing. And it doesn't limit healing to a particular ailment. It doesn't say, oh, I just had some surgery. So I'm going to need, you know, I'm going to need the, the staples to do their job and for the infections to stay away and things like that. It's really just this prayer of how do I live my best life 
am recognizing that there's healing needed. And so when I'm looking at this, to me, healing is mental and spiritual as opposed to curing, which is physical. I go to a doctor in hopes of a cure. Woohoo! Right? Like I, I indicated that I had my gallbladder out. I was having some issues. The doc went, oh yeah, that's really inflamed. I was 15 at the time. So that's pretty young to have a gallbladder out. Um, I was 15 and it was like, wow, yeah, that's really inflamed. Let's take it out. Took it out. No longer had the issues, right? Or at least in so many ways. The doctor, quote unquote, cured me. But I didn't necessarily have healing from that. I still had fear and I still had shame and I still had um, lack of confidence because of how my body had reacted to my inflamed gallbladder. And how do I deal with that? Um, And there's always side effects when you have your gallbladder out. And so here I am 25 years later and still have some challenges. But I don't have any issues because I've been healed. And that also leads to the question of, well, do you have a prayer for healing? What is healing for an incurable disease? For someone that might have a chronic disease, whatever that chronic disease might be, whether that's a mental challenge, a physiological challenge, an autoimmune disorder. I mean, I could go on and on and on where there's no cure and there's symptom relief, right? There might be, um, yeah, symptom relief and there might be help and pausing of the disease, but no cure itself. So how does healing combine there? And that's where I want to bring in a couple of scientific studies, right? So one of the things that we try to do in this podcast is really find the combination and integration of religion and science. And this place, this medical place of prayers and healing and curing, I think is one of those really great places where they overlap. Um, So I just want to, and we'll put this in the show notes. (laughs) That's on me. Um, So one of these comes from, it's not so terribly old. It was 2009. So, you know, as far as prayer and healing goes, that's not that old. (laughs) Um, It's only about 13 years old at this time. This was the Indian Journal of Psychiatry. Um, um, And it's housed at the NIH, so there's no paywall. It's lovely. And there's this beautiful understanding of does prayer help the physical body? And this, there was a meta study done that said, actually it can. And then sort of as an asterisk, or it can't. It's like, well, which is it, right? What, which is it? So before I go into some of those details, let me ask you, Ian and Kendra, do you think that praying helps ailments? And I'm trying to be very generic, right? Because I, I don't want it to be like, oh, it's just a surgery or, oh, it's this uh, a cancer thing. Or like, I don't want to limit what the ailment is. So that's why I'm using that very generic bland term. So for me, I struggle with the idea that 
prayer could heal like cancer, right? I know we're not trying to focus on a single one or anything, or that, you know, if you are in need of a medical procedure that, especially something that's life saving, right? That, oh, well, the laying of hands is all that person truly needs. I, I struggle with that, right? But for me, I recognize, especially as I've been on my own spiritual journey the past five years or so, that um, as as you said, Rachel, that you know, a surgery or something, a medical procedure may be able to heal something that I'm experiencing, um, like physically heal something, right? So, like with my hand, right? If I had not gone in and had a medical procedure, I would have died. You know, if I had lived in a place that did not have access to medication, I would have died, um, and because of the infection. And so, obviously, I needed that. But the trauma that I experienced took longer, and I don't think a purely just a medical procedure could have helped that. Right, that time processing, and if that included my own spiritual journey and prayer and things like that to help me just feel more. Uh, supported, you know, then I could see that. Right. But that's just how I feel about it. Hmm. Thank you, Ian. How about for you, Kendra? Yeah, I would say um, for me, I, I think that um, praying and I, I'm not sure like praying, I'm thinking of that as being like what, what we imagine is like the traditional like forms of prayer as being slightly different from things like meditation or do you are you kind of implying like all all of that kind of practice cuz for some people like meditation is really different than prayer but for some people it's like the same thing so regardless i don't know that it totally matters to um for what i'm going to say but i think that um prayer itself I don't think is the reason that people like experience healing. I think it's more about the feeling of presence and support that like you have a community around you who is directing their attention in in a variety of ways toward uh, you uh, in moments of like weakness and illness. And, and so I think that, like I associate the the effects of like healing and support when when someone knows that people are praying for them, um, it's 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 more likely in those situations that people are also like feeling socially supported and maybe they also have some like physical resources that are being poured in in ways that you you don't have if if no one is like praying for you and telling you that they're praying for you. Um, but if you do have that, then maybe you also have your community signing up for a meal train to like bring you food. And you are probably also, um, if you know that people are, are praying for you and if you are engaged in prayer activities, you're probably also more likely to be someone who regularly attends congregational services. So you're like in the presence of other people and you're, you know, doing something, you have more structure in your day or in your week. And so that like uh, facilitates this like stronger feeling of interconnectedness with with the community. And I think that that not only does something in terms of what 
like material resources you're able to benefit from, but it also gives people a sense of hope and resilience. And I think that is, um, that has a really meaningful impact on just how, how people, uh, can like carry illness or any, any kind of burdens. And, and so that's how I would, um, think about that question. And, and really like the reason, uh, like you're, you're asking the specific question about prayer, but, like what what I just reflected is really kind of a broader pattern and finding in the um, like scientific and social scientific research on religion and health or religion and mental health, um, where this like big question that researchers are kind of always trying to like answer in a variety of ways is like, does religion make people healthier? Does religion make people feel good, make them like better in whatever ways? And and so it's actually a pretty like large body of research, this like religion and health um, intersection. And, and a lot of what is found it is this um, correlation between like attending and like showing up having a presence in your community and having like better health and social outcomes um, in part because you are surrounded by the people, you're surrounded by resources, you're surrounded by support structures. And so, you know, that can like mean a few different things and it's like a a complicated question to ask, but um, that's, that's a, that broader pattern, I think, works as well when you ask like a more specific question like does prayer uh, facilitate healing so so that's how I think about that question no I think that's I think that's wonderful and one of the things that you're um as you said that you're really pointing out here is what else does prayer come with right and can we isolate prayer from religion can we isolate prayer from religious community and other practices? Um, and I think that that's a really important piece. We recognize in medicine the placebo effect, right? Where we're saying, hey, by the way, here's something that's going to help you. And we go, oh, thank you. And it works, even though it shouldn't have, right? Even, even though it was a sugar cube, <laughs> Right, even that was just an M&M. But it worked because there's something about our um, knowing that we're getting help from whatever source that actually encourages our own bodies to help fix ourselves. Again, I'm not using quite appropriate terms. Um, So I think the same could be said for prayers, right? That perhaps... In some of these instances, prayer is like the placebo, right? For a theistic believing person who is told, uh, especially from an interventionist God perspective, who's told, we're praying to God on your behalf, that could really feel really intensely good. And saying, okay, I'm going to get out of this. I've got all these prayers. I've got God on my side. All right. In addition to the, and here's the meal train, (laughs) and here are the resources of someone to take away my worries because I know someone's going to take my kids to school because I, they're helping me with 
my job, like whatever it is, like taking all of those burdens away, which is one of the benefits of communities, religious or not, um, right? That, that, that allows the person who is in a physical place to focus solely on their bodies, to focus solely on the healing, which is a good thing. There was this fascinating, again, I'm going to link this, link this article, where there was a, a group of people who were told, like there were about 600 people who were told, we may or may not pray for you. Good luck. <laughs> and then another group of people, um, again, 600 people, I'm trying to find the exact, uh, the exact one. Um, another 600 or so that were not prayed for. So 600 were told, we may or may not pray for you. 600 were told, we may or may not pray for you. And then 600 were, um, were prayed for um, after being informed that they would be prayed for. Does that make sense? Or should I break those Wait, did down you again? say for the first two groups, they were the same condition? Like two groups were told, we may or may not pray for you. So, so there were 1,200 people who were told, we may or may not do this. Half of them then were prayed okay, for, gotcha. and the other half were not prayed for. There was another 600 who were told, we will pray for you, and then they were prayed for. As opposed to the opposite of, you know, we're going to pray for you, and then they didn't. Like, that was not, <laughs> that group was not, uh, there was no such group as that one. Um, so you have 600 people in each category. This was um, over six different hospitals, and they were all being treated for the exact same um, surgery. So this was uh, the surgery, it's, or the What's the word I'm looking for? The um, the experiment itself was a triple-blind, randomized, controlled study that examined whether remote intercessory prayer influenced recovery after coronary artery bypass graft surgery, and what then happens in the recovery process. Fascinating, right? <laughs> I'm looking at Ian's face. He's like, "Wow, I didn't know they could do that." Yeah. Um. So, and. So what they would do, prayer uh, started a day before the surgery and then would continue for 14 days afterward. Um, Different religious sites participated in receiving this prayer. And so what's happening in that system is that these are people who do not necessarily have their own prayer group, right? It's not like, hey, I'm going to call the synagogue and ask to be put on the Misha Berach list. And so then the rabbi calls and then we say, hey, what food can I bring you? Check you, check in on you at the hospital. Like none of that. It's just like, there's a random person who's going to randomly pray for you or not. Um, and you don't know who they are and they don't know who you are. Right? That's part of the, the triple blind. Um, uh, the nurses were also blind to the group assignments. Um, there was not much difference in those that, in that 1,200 who were told maybe or maybe not, and that did maybe or maybe not. And I love this line. In contrast, complications occurred in a significantly larger portion of patients, in this case, 59%, who knew for certain that they were being prayed for. 
but mortality rates remain the same. So what that means is that there's a group of people, right, just to sort of unpack that a little bit, there's a group of people who are going in for this coronary artery bypass graft who are told, you're going to be prayed for by some unknown entity, right? You don't know the people, you don't even know their religion, but they're going to pray for you. And they did. That group of people were worse off (laughs) than the people who didn't know whether or not they were prayed for. And I found that amazingly shocking. And so I had to sort of ask myself, okay, why? Why is that the case? Um, And one of the answers that I came up with is, um, is that if we're just giving over our curing to something else or someone else, then we're not doing the best for ourselves. I'm being prayed for. It'll be fine. Oh, I developed this extra thing, but I'm being prayed for. It'll be fine, right? That we sort of don't then fully really pay attention to what's going on in the physical body because, well, I've got God on my side and it'll be fine. And so that's how I I looked at that piece where prayer was actually harmful to cure. Interesting. Do you remember? What are your reactions? Um, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. I, I, I am aware of this study and I haven't looked at it in a long time. So I'm, I can't remember like um, what, what was their discussion of that? Do you remember like at the end of the, the paper, how they kind of explained that? Cause I, I have a few thoughts, but I was trying to remember like how they kind of concluded. Um, so there, you know what, let me just read. So this was the study that I just um, read from was actually a meta study where it was looking at lots of different Um, So just to sort of clarify what a meta study is, it's not one experiment and here are my results. It's a, let me look at all the different people that have ever done this kind of experiment and see, see if trend lines track between different researchers, between different ideas. Um, And so that's what this particular study was. And their conclusion um, is this. So let me just straight up read it for you. Um, and then this, and then I'll link it in the show notes for anyone that wants to go in depth in this particular article, or better yet, um, each of the experiments that are referenced um, are hyperlinked, so that you can then go see to each one of them and see their own conclusions. But the conclusion on this this meta paper says this: um, Where does this leave us? God may indeed exist, and prayer may indeed heal. However, it appears that for important theological and scientific reasons, randomized controlled studies cannot be applied to the study of the efficacy of prayer and healing. In fact, no form of scientific inquiry presently available can suitably address the subject. Therefore, the continuance of such research may result in the conducted studies finding place among other seemingly impeccable studies with seemingly absurd claims." Whereas we have attempted to be scientifically and politically correct in our critique, other authors have been humorous, even scathing in their criticism. The the aim of science is not to open a door to infinite wisdom, Mm -hmm. but to set a limit on finite, infinite error. Which is a quote from Galileo. So, does that help what you were asking, Kendra? 
Yeah, because I my my memory of like the first time I learned about this study, I, it was in the context of a, a class in my master's um, degree, and I, I think like what what you just read makes a lot of sense for what I remember about the conversation that took place after everyone had like looked at this study together because it really I think opened up a conversation about uh you know like using um using the tools of science to try to like answer questions that for some people are it's like an empirical question like you can test it and if it doesn't work then that means it's you know like th- like they're not concerned with truth claims about like theology and god but for a lot of people that felt like a stake that was uncomfortable and I think is reflected in the end of that paper where I don't remember like the religious affiliations of the researchers, but that, um, you know, walk, it's like a weird line to walk when you're doing that kind of research. But mm. you you do have like theological beliefs that are explicitly tied up with the efficacy of prayer and like the the reality of prayer and God and all of that. And so I think the... I think the way that the researchers in that paper tried to kind of like be explicit about the way that they're walking that line at the end, it just like reads really strangely compared to like other yeah. uh, like yep. scientific research papers. Um, and so I think it just kind of made a lot of people uh, like have a lot of feelings about uh, <laughs> like what's going on here. Uh, can you like prove that prayer doesn't work or does work? And I think like for for myself, I just, I look at something like that and I think it's it's really interesting to try to do that kind of research. But for me, I just think it matches what, uh, what the broader pattern is of this work on religion and health. Um, that like the people across the condition groups, it didn't really make much of a difference because it, it seems like the the um the whole setup was that this was like a remote transaction like they weren't embedded in communities and so you know if you understand like if you uh see this the way that i see this as as like being really about like social connection and social support then it just makes a lot of sense that yeah of course it wouldn't like make that much of a difference if they're you know not really feeling supported in other ways if if it's almost like um this is like a uh an experimental study version of someone saying like my thoughts and prayers are with you as a kind of offhanded like text to someone that is like an acquaintance (laughs) who's like suffering somehow it's like it's a nice thing to do and it's a nice thing to say but it's like it's kind of a, an easy way to feel like you're helping someone when you're not really helping them. <laughs> so, um, no more thoughts and prayers. Yeah, mm-hmm. action. <laughs> and so I think that's just uh, that feels like very very natural because like I think in my own life, whether that has been inside or outside of uh, like religion's walls, I think the moments that I see that reflect healing in the way that you have set it up for us, uh, Rachel, to think about healing as being this more holistic thing um, versus a cure. I think those moments of healing that have felt the most um, like powerful or meaningful as I've observed it has everything to do with people like coming together to support each other and to really um, like 
dedicate attention and commitment and and time and resources to to lift other other people up and and I think that you know uh that's not to say like I personally am not trying to say like if prayer makes you feel better makes you feel like more connected to you know other other people or or you know like God like that's that's fine <laughs> but that's kind of it's not the way that I like think about like the mechanism of what the healing is behind that practice. Um, and so in that way, I, I'm not, I, it's, it's an interesting finding and I, I totally see how that would be like shocking to a lot of people, but it doesn't feel surprising to me just given my own like kind of familiarity with the, that wider research on, you know, like does religion <laughs> make people healthier? And actually I'll, I'll add to, cause um, talking about this like religion and health research, the most common uh, the most common measure that is used uh, in religion and health research um, as, as like a variable to to correlate with like health and social outcomes. The most popular measure is uh, religious attendance, like service attendance, <laughs> like how often you go to, your congregational services, how often you show up. And so it's this very specific variable that's like self-reported. So, you know, people, um, you don't always know like why, like maybe, maybe the people who show up to services are just people who are like healthy in the first place because they're not sick and they can get out of bed in the morning and like get dressed and go to, to church or whatever. So there's also like those kind of complicating factors of like, you know, it's, is it that religion is making people healthier and making them feel more supported? Or is it just that healthy people in the first place are the ones who can go <laughs> go to these services, you know? So there's like other questions you can ask to dig into it, but it's just, uh, it, it, that's definitely a pattern of like how this is measured is very much wrapped up in like how often people show up, how often people are there with their community. And, and so that's just... Um, just interesting it's like a pattern of of what we find and why we find that excellent thank you how about you Ian? do you have thoughts on on this well so i mean obviously i don't know this research very well but you know i kept i kept thinking about especially as we talk about you know the impact on mental health and stuff and it's interesting there's someone that i have gotten to i guess a twitter friend someone uh, out of um i believe he's this person's in england and has um, become a fan of our our show, and is listening to the ones that we did in the fall. Um, specifically, you know, the first it was around mental health, and uh, you know, Zach led the one on depression, and I led the one on um, anxiety. And you know, I'd said this before we started recording, uh, and it was just Rachel and I, but I had a really challenging experience with my depression this past Saturday. Um, I mean, it was one of the worst experiences I've ever had, and. Um, and so it just kind of made me think about back when I was leading the Compline services that the late, the eight, roughly eight o'clock services for my church and started kind of going through these different prayers around mental health. Cause I really wanted to focus on that throughout the pandemic, especially. And, you know, Kendra, you said something, one of the two of you said something about, you know, earlier people holding on to the idea of, you know, some believing that, that prayer can cure or solve problems or something like that, or that, you know, uh, interventionist God, you know, is the one that makes things go away or something like that. And I was remembering a, uh, a, 
a series of prayers I found specifically on mental health. Um, it was written uh, kind of, I think, for intent, you know, with the, um, the Episcopal Church. But I remember, so I, that's what I've been looking for, and I found it, and, you know, I, I enjoyed it. Um, but I remember, too, while reading it, that I did not like the fact that it seemed to suggest that the strength that those of us who struggle with mental health, um, that God gives us that strength. And I really struggled with that in that litany um, that, you know, if we did not pray in a way asking God to give us the strength that could we then be strong enough to, you know, help with our mental health journey. And so I wrote a part, like a, just a short little piece um, for that and added it on my own, but just really emphasized that and the language I used for this last part, because it was around the stigma too around mental health, but you know, I had said that um, empower us to see the strength and courage that already resides within us to put an end to this dangerous and deadly stigma. You know, and um, just because I felt like, and it was you know for myself, but I wanted others to hear it too, that it's not necessary to say that God is the one that makes us strong, right? Because, and I was I was saying to Rachel that. You know, when you're deep in with your depression, um, you can't see a way out, right? I mean, there's when you're having those experiences, you you can't get out, um, and you do need the help from others. But one of the things I try to work on is to recognize that the strength is there. That sometimes I just need help finding it, right? And that that's where others come in to help. You know, is to re- remind me that I'm a good person. Remind me that this is not who you who I truly am. That kind of stuff. And so I just I get just kept look looking for that. I know I'm rambling, I'm sorry, but I just was looking for that particular part of the service because it just was so important to me to emphasize to at least my own uh, religious community that we have the strength there in us already. And that, you know, if we want to believe that God plays a role to help us find it, that's okay. But it's not that God is the one that gives it to us, if that makes sense. And not... Absolutely. And it's nice that I was reminded of that because of the experience I had on Saturday, right? Of how challenging and dark that was. I mean, it was brutal. Um, so that's all I want to say. Sorry. Thank you for sharing mm-hmm. that. I think, I think one of the places where this idea of healing and curing are so different is with mental health and chronic things mm-hmm. where there's not necessarily a cure. Um, there's relief and there's support and there's symptomatic and there's some really great drugs. Um, but none of those things is a cure. Right? We're not going to do a frontal lobectomy. <laughs> right. We, we moved away from that, generally speaking. Thankfully so. Um, thankfully. Yeah. So then how can prayer and community as wrapped up in prayer be part of that conversation, right? The prayer of, again, we can focus here on the, the, the mental health piece, but any chronic illness. Um, we can say, okay, we're not praying for this to go away. Whereas we might like that, that doesn't necessarily mesh with our individual theology or our group theology, whatever it might be. 
or a recognition that that's just not how it works. Um, but we can pray for healing of spirit, mm-hmm. uh, pray for a calmness and acceptance of okayness, of worthy, of confidence, of all those things that make us who we are and not the disease, whatever it might be. And to me, that's where prayer really fits in, the prayers of healing, rather. Right? That's where we're saying, okay, I pray for good surgeons to know their stuff. Mm-hmm. Right? I don't pray that this is going to work out perfectly. I pray for a surgeon who's well-rested, <laughs> who is up on all of their stuff, because that means they're going to be the best that they can be. I pray for a really good therapist who can talk to this person, right? I pray for meal trains when necessary. Mm -hmm. I pray for the person who feels on the out of a community to still know that they're part of the community. Um, Right? I think one interesting thing that you said, Kendra, was, is it just the healthy people that come? And that's why religion helps, right? That's why religious people are healthier, um, according to some studies. But I also think that I look around at my synagogue and other synagogues, not just mine, really, but any faith-based organization. I say, we're not a country club. We're more of a hospital. People don't come to us because they're feeling amazing. People come to us because there's something that hurts. Not all the time. So sometimes we can then be the people that are hurting or we can support those that are. And I think that's the job of prayer and healing is exactly what Kendra has been saying this entire time, (laughs) that it's all about the community. Mm -hmm. It's all about all of the other things that lead into it and giving us that ability to recognize what our role is in this relationship. Again, if we want to throw in some divine, some theology in here, if we are partners in creation— well, what can we do? Right? Where can we go? What can we do so that it's not thoughts and prayers? Right? Thoughts and prayers are for Hallmark cards. Right. Well, Facebook memes. And I think, too, you know, as Kendra said throughout, and Rachel, you just pointed out about the, you know, the prayers can remind us of community. That, you know, if you are someone who believes in, God or some other deity that, you know, for me, at least sometimes it's, you know, back to the mental health struggles that I have that it's, you know, whenever you're struggling with depression or anxiety and having a really hard time, like really deep in that people, sometimes things people will say to you is that you're not alone. And, you know, and it's helpful to remember that because that's where you go most of the time, or even any kind of physical pain too, that, you know, when it's really bad that, you know, a lot of us will go to that, oh my gosh, I'm the only one dealing with this. You know, that's just the thought process that goes through a lot of people's heads. And so it's helpful when you hear from others that, um, no, you're not like I do it. It happens to me too. You know, so, cause then that brings back the community feel right. But I think, and I was looking back at the full set of prayers that I uh, made some edits on, but I, I think sometimes it's helpful too, that if you are in a, like a space where you're unable to talk with others to help you out of that, that 
maybe it's helpful for people to think that, okay, a prayer right now reminding me that maybe I'm physically alone, but God's there, right? Or a spirit so to remind you that you're not alone. Um, you may not have anyone physically in that space with you, um, a family member or a friend sitting there next to you holding you, but that if that's what helps you get out of that experience, then I think there's a lot of power to prayer right there. Because that then gives us that feeling of community, that warmth that community can give. Um, and so to me, if that's what helps people, I'm all for it. Like, I think that's a beautiful thing. Yeah, I agree. And you are not alone. Yeah. Um, it sucks some days. <laughs> Sorry. <Yeah. laughs> Just us. One of the things that I think prayer also gives us to is hope, right? And um, a quick little story um, as sort of as we're wrapping this up today um, before I move into our Down the Wormhole Minute. Um, there was, and I'm, I'm going to not remember this story in full, so my apologies, but I'll try to find it and try to put it in the show notes uh, in full. There was uh, Hanukkah time, and there was a youth with an older person in the men's section of some concentration camp, and this person saved their their bit of their bit of oil, which was supposed to be for food rations, and they saved it to burn for the Hanukkah lights. And the the child, the youth, was just shocked at this, and they said, "What are you doing? Like that's that's your food." Um, and the response was something to the effect of a person can go three days without food. Um, a person can go, um, yeah, or three, three weeks without food. A person can go three days without water, but we cannot go three minutes without hope. Um, and it's like bringing in hope is so necessary for whatever it is, you know, whatever, whatever the ailment is, whether it's chronic or uh, acute, whether it is physical or mental, whether you're feeling alone or even feeling very supported, it's crucial to have hope. And so I want to end today with a prayer, which I think is, all right, starting with a prayer and ending with a prayer. And so this prayer can be said at night or you can substitute if you prefer during the day. Help us lie down at night in comfort, safety, and peace. May the dreams of children be sweet tonight and tomorrow and the day after. May the future be bright for them and for their children and for generations to come. Give us the ability to rest after long days of work and worry. Give us the chance to let our souls be at peace and give us the grace to know how to separate from the things we cannot control. Allow us to quiet our bodies and our minds as we drift away from mundane and enter into a sacred deep dreamscape. Spread over us the shelter of your comforting presence. Help us to know that it's okay to let go, to breathe, to be, just to be. Journey with us into our sublime subconsciousness and let us live in this liminal space of neither here nor there. For when we are with you, we are never truly alone. Guide us, watch over us, protect us. 
allow us to rise in the morning with the fragrance of a new dawn, a chance to hope, to create ourselves anew, again and again and again. Hmm. I like that. Where'd you get that? Did you write that? Okay. That one was written by Sarah Stock Mayo, and I will send the link. Yeah, please do. Okay. Well, hey, look, I'm here. This is me, Zach, hey. and I was not in this episode, but now I am at the Yay. very end. <laughs> Today, for those listening, uh, is Good Friday, um, and my boys both had the flu this week, which, of course, it's only Holy Week. Why wouldn't you have the flu? So I have been listening to the recording of this while upstairs, but I would be remiss if I were to leave you all without a good story from the Dead Christian Story Hour here at the end of our episode. This is one that I've been sitting on for a while, pun intended, in a second, you'll see, that I am... I, I, I think is great. I learned about this guy in seminary and I've been fascinated with him. Um, now remember the dead Christian story hour is all about hagiography, which means fanciful tales about dead Christians. So, um, take it, everything you hear with a grain of salt and a heart full of love. I don't know. That's not a real tagline anyway. So let's go back. Let's go back to like three ninety. Um, <laughs> A.D., C.E., sorry, 390, back when we were all young in what is now modern-day Turkey. So there's this dude there. His name is Simeon, and he's born into a family of decent means. Uh, But at 13, he had the audacity to read the Sermon on the Mount, and it just, it rightfully messed him up. Because anyone who has read Jesus' Sermon on the Mount knows that you either have to take it seriously and have it ruin your life, or you can take it metaphorically and then uh, live your life. So at 16, he decided to join a monastery and devoted his entire life to austerity and solitude. However, he was a bit too much into it. Maybe he was a little too enthusiastic about uh, solitude and austerity. And he actually got kicked out of the monastery because he prayed too much by himself. Can you imagine getting kicked out of a monastery because you prayed too much by yourself? Um, (laughs) I don't know, making the other monks look bad or something. So... He got himself a little hut, you know, a little one-room hut, and he stayed in there for a year and a half without saying a single thing and spent all his time in prayer, which has a way of gaining a reputation if you're going to do that sort of thing in a small town. So people started to show up at his door because they're like, man, this guy is hella holy and we want a little piece of that holiness. And of course, he's into solitude. He's into silence. But suddenly he's got all these people knocking on his door and being like, hey, how can we be silent in solitude as well? And he's like, first thing you can do is get off my property. But he said it in a much nicer way. So Eventually, he got too many people at his little hut, and so he ran away into a tiny crag on the side of a mountain to get away. He went, like, real high up in this mountain, real inaccessible, and he was safe for a little while, but then people heard about where he was. And then, if you can imagine, at this point, is like, wow— you can go on a trek up a mountain to a remote crag where you will find a wise monk mystic who will give you the secrets of the universe. Like, that writes itself— 
that is some good PR unless you actually don't want people there. And so people started going there and it became this spiritual journey to go see the crag where, uh, where Simeon was. So Simeon came out of his crag and he's like, where can I go where people can't find me? So in um, the ruins of uh, Telenisa, he found a 10-foot pillar of what used to be a Greek temple. And he climbed up to the top of that pillar and sat up there, 10 feet up in the air, which nobody can reach him now. And uh, the local kids would bring him food and water once or twice a day and have a little um, bucket for his excrement that they would clean out so that he would have a, a, a nice and sanitary time up there. So he spent four years at that pillar, but people kept coming. So he found another pillar where it was 18 feet and he lived up there for three years, but people kept coming to that one. So he spent 10 years on top of a pillar that was 33 feet. And then he went to one that was 20 feet. And eventually he was at 60 feet high up in the air. And you'd think you'd be safe at 60 feet in the air, but no, people made ladders. And they started putting ladders up against his pillar to come up there and ask him for spiritual advice. And so after decades of just trying to get away from people, but being just so dag holy that people needed to come to him, he finally gave in and started preaching every afternoon. And he wrote letters to his followers, which many of them still exist today. And ironically, his message was actually like super chill. You'd expect him to prescribe this kind of thing for all his followers. But he basically just told everyone, hey, don't go overboard. Temperance is key. Uh, nothing in extremes for most of you people. Just like live your life to the best of your ability without going overboard in one way or another. Which... It's pretty good. <laughs> uh, the Pope came to him. The Emperor Theodosius II came to him. Eventually, they had to erect not one but two walls around his, his tower to keep out the adoring public and had to hire full-time bouncers to keep people out of his, uh, of his little uh, compound at that point. His mother came at one point, and they wouldn't let her past the outer circle where the women were allowed. And he said, uh, woman, I love you. And if we've both lived good enough lives, then we'll see each other again. And <laughs> <laughs> so on September 2nd, 459, after 35 to 42 years on top of various pillars, he died on the pillar. And they came up and they got his body down and they buried him. And there was a huge burial party with thousands of people that showed up for St. Simeon of Stylites. Um, Stylites just being the word for the poles that he was on, the, the pillars. So St. Simeon of pillars. And then after he died, dozens of people in uh, that region of Asia Minor uh, began copying him and living on tops of poles. And it would not be unusual to travel through what's modern day Turkey and find most cities had at least one gnarled old man who lived on top of an old column and would just pray all day in the sunshine. And this lasted for centuries and is perhaps one of the most unique and uh, wonderful early saints of the church. 
I love that. You think uh, Theo and Charlie could come get you if you sat on top of uh, a 55-foot? <sighs> Those of you who are listening from home will not have known the amount of times that both of my sons came in here to disrupt even that short couple of minutes of recording, because <laughs> I'm going to edit them all out. And all I kept thinking as they continually came in here to demand things of me and to ask me to change things on their their devices and all of that was, man, a 60-foot column right now just sounds great. Just put me on top of you- that old column. His YouTube viewers and supporters, right? Subscribers. Well, I'm sending I'm sending you my thoughts and my prayers. <laughs> <laughs> now that was very well played. Thank you for your <laughs> thoughts and prayers. Oh, hi Theo. Theo's come back to say hi. Hey again. buddy. Perfect timing. Theo, come here and say hi. 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 <laughs> you having a fun day with dad so far? I said hi. Oh, sorry. He said hi. That's enough. We'll That's enough. We're fine. Everything's fine. <sighs> okay. Okay. <laughs>